Hello, this is Ed Howard, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the May 11th, 2023 issue of the East Aurora Advertiser on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. And the headline article in this week's East Aurora Advertiser is, Hearing Receives No Community Comments. And the reporter is Sean, uh, Sean Cunningham. An opportunity for comment on public funds in East Aurora last week was met with silence. The East Aurora School Board held a public hearing last Wednesday regarding the proposed 2023-2024 school budget. There were no public comments made during the hearing. I wish there were more people here that had asked questions about the budget, board member Maria Improta said. This year's proposed budget is $43.8 million, with a tax levy increase of 2.74%. In addition to the approval of the budget, voters will be asked to vote on Proposition 2, which will allow the district to spend $75,000 from the Technology Reserve Fund for Chromebook replacements for 5th and ninth grades, as well as iPad carts for Universal Pre-Kindergarten and Kindergarten. Four East Aurora residents are vying for three open seats on the school board effective July 1st. They are Jessica Armbrust, Daniel Brunson, Victoria Parker, and Paul Blowers. The school budget vote will be held on Tuesday, May 16th in the cafeteria of the East Aurora Middle School on Main Street, 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. If the budget does not pass, there will be a revote on June 2nd. If the district adopts a contingent budget, the current budget proposal will need to be reduced by $693,000. Candidate profiles are available in last week's digital edition or can be viewed for free on the newspaper's website. The next article on the front page of the East Aurora Advertiser is headlined, Potential Tax Exemption for First Responders, and the reporter here, here is Sherry Ferrello. New York State... Excuse me. New York State and Erie County have passed new laws that will allow school districts, fire districts, and municipalities to offer tax incentives to fire and ambulance volunteers. The tax break would equate to 10% of the assessed value of a primary residence. Volunteer firefighters and ambulance workers must live in the community served by their volunteer organization and meet a minimum service requirement of between two and five years as set by the respective taxing jurisdiction. The Village of East Aurora has a public hearing on the measure scheduled for June 20th. Elma Supervisor Wayne Clark said that the town is looking over the details with the town assessor. Marilla has not scheduled a public hearing yet. The state says that communities can also give a lifetime exemption to volunteers with at least 20 years of service as long as they maintain their primary residence in the county they have served. East Aurora is including this measure in its local law if it passes. County legislator Jim Malshevsky said that he created this legislation for the county. Now that it has been approved, it has to be passed by each town and each school district to be able to get the full exemption. He said that the town of Colden passed it right away after the country. The county, that is. Malshevsky said that if this tax break goes into effect, it can be a recruitment tool for fire companies. 
He anticipates it having a minor impact on non-volunteer taxpayers, and he explained that when a municipality has 11,000 residents with 50 fire or ambulance volunteers, the impact will be pennies on the dollar. If towns have to begin hiring firefighters, it has the potential to cost a lot more. When you look at the big picture, if the worst-case scenario happened and we had to start hiring firemen, it would have a tremendous impact on the budget. Instead of people getting a $400 break in taxes, we'll be paying them $40,000 a year in salaries, he said. Bauschewski also said he's discussing at the county level the possibility of increasing this tax break to volunteers. Right now, it would be at a 10% discount on the assessed value of the property. This was the state guideline, but down the line, it would be nice to increase this to 15 or 20% so that this is a real tool they can recruit with. The public hearing in East Aurora will begin at 7 p.m. on June 20th. This meeting is on a Tuesday because of the Juneteenth holiday. Our next article from the front page of the East Aurora Advertiser is headlined, Youth of the Year Award Winners from Local Clubs Are Announced. Boys and Girls Club EA's Burke is runner-up for a Western New York Award. Natalie Burke of the Boys and Girls Club of East Aurora and Sienna Rowley of the Boys and Girls Club of Elma, Marilla, and Wales were easy nominations for this year's Western New York Youth of the Year Award, sponsored annually by the Construction Industry Education Foundation. At a May 8th dinner at Alton's Restaurant on Transit Road in Elma, Burke was named runner-up for the Western New York Youth of the Year. Anna Tavernier of the Holland Boys and Girls Club took top honors. Neil Parrish, director of the club in East Aurora, gave the East Aurora recipient, Natalie Burke, a glowing endorsement. Burke is a senior at East Aurora High School. Natalie Burke was our clear-cut choice for our Youth of the Year. She's been a member since she was seven and has been a program aide since she was old enough to come into the staff. The kids love her, and everyone on our staff is impressed with her willingness to go the extra mile for the kids she works with and for the club, Parrish said. We considered a couple others, but Natalie really stood out because of her long relationship with the club and her accomplishments with the kids she works with. She's one of the most mature, responsible young adults I've known in my time here. Tracy Carp Teal, longtime executive director at Boys and Girls Club, had similar words for Iroquois Junior Rowley. Sienna Rowley is the first junior we've selected for the Youth of the Year and the first junior we've nominated for the Western New York Youth of the Year Award. But she was really the right choice. She went from being a member, probably at age 10, to a volunteer as soon as she was old enough to help out to the staff. When she turned 16, she applied for a job here, and I hired her immediately. She runs the craft room now and has kids engaged in all kinds of projects every day after school. This will be her second summer at our day camp. She's developed a lot of great relationships with the kids. While the Western New York Youth of the Year Award is a competition of sorts, with Burke and Rowley in the running against youth from 12 member clubs of the Western New York Boys and Girls Collaborative, Parrish said that there are only winners among the finalists. The Youth of the Year is the highest award we give at the East Aurora Club, and I'm sure it's the same at all clubs involved. We're so proud that Natalie is runner-up this year. She's been such an asset to our club, we're going to miss her next year.
In a press release, CIEF said every year, nearly 17,000 young people are served by boys and girls clubs in western New York. To shore our continued support in preparing today's youth for a brighter tomorrow, the Construction Industry Education Foundation is partnering with the Boys and Girls Collaborative of Western New York by sponsoring the Youth of the Year program. Judging this year was by a committee consisting of Blythe Merrill, the John R. Oshai Foundation Executive Vice President, Jen Van Dusen, the Construction Exchange of Buffalo and Western New York Workforce and Education Director, Jim Malshevsky, Erie County District 10 Legislator, and Tracy Bradshaw, CEO of the Boys and Girls Club Collaborative of Western New York. All Youths of the Year candidate are eligible for scholarships they can use towards post-secondary education in either academic pursuits or trades. While the judges were deciding on the winner, I had a chance to meet with Natalie and Sienna and their club directors. As I am so often these days when I speak with high school students, I was impressed with their poise, enthusiasm, sense of purpose, and articulate manner of speaking. Burke told me that she's off to the University of South Carolina in the fall to study biology on a pre-med track. She was accepted into a capstone program with a scholarship, evidence that she not only is an active club member and employee, but she gets some pretty good grades, too. And she's a member of the National Honor Society and Varsity Tennis Team. The club, though, quote, is the place where I'm really comfortable, she said, I've been coming here basically every day since I was in daycare, then after school since I was seven. My cousin, Allie Eden, worked here, and my brother was a club kid too, so that made it easy for me to get involved. And the people here, Neil, Gary Schertram, Gavin Griffin, George Davidson, that's what makes me want to keep coming back. Right now, I'm a program aide working in the games room. I run the Keystone Club with the high school kids. We meet Sunday nights to plan activities like dodgeball tournaments, fifth quarter football after parties, March Madness, taco nights, Friendsgiving to engage the older kids. I also organize the Torch Club, a leadership club for middle schoolers. And I get one more summer at Camp Skanokasan. She has quite a following, Parrish said. You know why I put her in the youngest kids with the Skanokasan every summer? It's because I want her to be the first staff they have contact with. That's how confident I am in her ability to be a positive influence on them. Rowley is also a National Honor Society member, a Spanish Honor Society member, and a varsity lacrosse player, activities Carp Teal encourages. She'll be working for lots of years after high school, so I'm happy to accommodate her extracurricular activities. Rowley attends the BOCES Certified Nursing Assistant Program half a day at the Wallace D. Ormsby Center in East Aurora with the other half a day of the day at Iroquois. Still a year away from post-secondary decisions, she has her sights set on pharmacy school in Albany or Buffalo. Of her work at EMW, she credits her boss for giving her the all-important first job. In my interview for the award, they asked me who my inspiration was. I told them I learned my worth ethic from Tracy and other staff, Rowley said. Everyone works so hard here to take care of the kids and each other. It's a second home, so it's easy to fit in when everyone has the same goal. 
I have fun every day planning a craft and letting the kids get creative. I also run the junior leadership program for grades 6, 7, and 8. I like to think that the kids respond to me because having someone closer to them in age makes it easier to talk. They'll bring me problems they have knowing that I'll listen. For many kids, this is their safe haven, maybe the best part of their day. Burke echoes those thoughts. After a while, you get so you can sense when one of your kids is having some troubles, whether it's at home, school, or with some friends. Middle school can be a rough time. They know I'll listen and be supportive. Both girls were interviewed by the judges last week. A potentially daunting experience, they got through it fine. A credit to the poise and belief in what they can do. I learned that people aren't as scary as they seem, Rowley said with a smile, referring to the panel of judges. When asked about the qualities of a good youth leader, she said, I told them that in my activities at the club, I include everyone. I don't leave anybody out. Listen, have fun. After I settled down at the interview, Burke said, I realized how easy it was to talk about the club. I told them that the best way to reach success is to be the best version of myself that I can be. Our next item from the East Aurora Advertiser is on page 5, and it is Spotlight on Kelly Meckes, Changing the World One Dog at a Time. Kelly Meckes, a resident of Elma and the secretary of the Buffalo Pug and Small Breed Rescue on Military Road in Tonawanda, shares stories and concerns of volunteering with and working with dogs to ensure they're safe, healthy, and loved. We're teaching these dogs to love life, she said. Kelly has fundraised, fostered, and found homes for dogs across western New York. Kelly's full-time job is working as a recruiter for M&T Bank. Buffalo Pug and Small Breed Rescue is a nonprofit organization that survives on volunteer workers rather than employees. She describes her work with Buffalo Pugs as a second job, putting in many hours after work and on the weekends to make sure things run smoothly. In 2022, she helped rescue 220 dogs that may have been euthanized had they not been rescued by the organization. Many of the dogs that find themselves at Buffalo Pug and Small Breed Rescue come from breeders that deem dogs insignificant after they can no longer produce frequent litters. Most of these unwanted dogs are from Ohio, so Kelly and other volunteers make day-long trips twice a week to rescue a dozen or so dogs that would otherwise be euthanized. The volunteers put in a great effort to ensure that every dog comes back, is placed in a sanitary crate with new and clean towels, and when the dogs arrive, they're welcomed, but there's still a lot of work to do. Volunteer tasks include checking for expired dog food, organizing a supply closet, and deep cleaning. On top of that, the tents need to be cleaned out. Let me pause here on our article for just a moment and remind you that you're listening to a reading of articles and features from the East Aurora Advertiser on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Our article continues. Kelly points out that fundraising is crucial to maintain Buffalo Pug and Small Breed Rescue, On top of the expenses of transportation and the dog's environment, vet expenses and preparing the dogs for training costs approximately $500 per dog. Several events during the year are held to fundraise and promote the dogs that need to find their forever homes. The largest event is held around the holidays and is called 
Santa Paws. Santa Claus comes and takes pictures with the dogs, and there's a raffle of 100 gift baskets. Rescuing, rescuing a dog is only the first step for this organization. The volunteers spend a lot of time placing the dogs on a path of healing. Dogs with trauma need to be well-trained to learn how to trust people again. When dogs are taken back to Buffalo Pug and Small Breed Rescue, they're no longer use, used as something that generates a profit, but are trained to relax and be loved by people. Kelly explains, they don't know what a warm home is, they don't know what a toy is, they do not know what kids are. You just need to be patient. When dogs are ready for adoption, finding them the perfect home may seem tough, but Kelly assures potential adopters that every dog can find a loving home. Kelly recalls her first dog, Lulu, whom Kelly warmly stated had the best two years of her life after being spoiled rotten living in a home Lulu could never have dreamed of. After Lulu, the domino effect of fostering dogs began. She's always fostering a dog. Kelly has even called a, been called a foster failure due to adopting foster dogs, which she just couldn't say no to, which currently are her two Shih Tzus, Zooey and Rosie, who help any newcomer dog in Kelly's home who's unfamiliar with the spoiled dog life. Her current foster dog, Stevie, is in the process of final preparation before being adopted into what Kelly describes as Stevie's perfect family. Stevie, Kelly has seen an amazing transformation in Stevie, but he's not the only dog to undergo such a transformation. Kelly notes that every dog grows immensely throughout the time after they have after they're rescued. Even after Kelly's foster dogs are adopted, she will receive updates on their progress, like when they begin to speak while playing and how the dog sleeps in the owner's bed. Dogs even go on to be the cutest celebrities and can follow at Tiniest Tina on Instagram. Kelly and the board of Buffalo Pug and Small Breed Rescue have made a difference in countless lives, not just counting dogs as every new home is filled with a new spark of love and life, as the dogs learn to adjust to their new, perfect families around them. If you want to get involved by fostering or volunteering with this mission of the Buffalo Pug and Small Breed Rescue, visit www.buffalopugs.org and reach out to Kelly. High schoolers can also volunteer for community service hours. Next, we have the Memories column, which is a look back at stories from past issues of the East Aurora Advertiser, and we start 15 years ago on May 11, 2008. Arthur Jacqueline, the attorney who presented several lawsuits against the town of Aurora's purchase of the former Southside School, calls an April 17th resolution by the town board blaming Jacqueline for driving up the interest rate on bonds for the purchase of 300 Gleed Avenue from 3.45% to 4.95% as, quote, petty and vindictive as any re resolution I've seen in my 32 years of practicing law. A resident of Pound Road in Elma reports that his brother, with whom he does not get along, is pumping water onto his property and flooding his basement. The brother is advised by the Erie County Sheriff's deputies to stop pumping water into the caller's yard. 
Third-grade students at East Aurora Elementary School are treated to an hour-long assembly with Sharon Taberzi and three of her owls. Caitlin Wetlofer of East Aurora and Michael Truanski are named to the Dean's List at the University of Buffalo, achieving a grain point average of 3.6 or better. Officer Patrick Welch is nominated as the East Aurora Police Department recipient of the Erie County Stop DWI Award Program for 2007, an award that recognizes Erie County's best law enforcement officers for their contributions to the quality and safety of the community. Next, we go back 30 years to May 11, 1993. The Aurora Town Board accepts the resignation of Art Willard from the Aurora Library Board with deep regret and thanks him for his years of service, adjourning the meeting in his honor. Area notables dress up to provide impeccable service at the Celebrity Waiters Dinner to benefit the Leukemia Society, where the waiters engage in fun and antics to collect tips for the charity and are willing to do almost anything, including singing karaoke and taking a pie in the face. Rob Goler, a junior at East Aurora High School, receives the Xerox Award in Humanities, Social Sciences, as presented by Xerox Corporation. Dana Newman is crowned the 1993 Tulip Festival Queen in Holland. The East Aurora Board of Education votes to reject reject the fact finder's report on the impasse in contract negotiations with the district's Civil Service Employees Union. First Presbyterian Church of East Aurora celebrates the confirmation of five young boys and girls, Seth Flayman, Rob Johnston, Justin Miller, Amy Tyler, and Todd Watson. Tri-Quai 93 organizers request citizen contributions to fund a laser light show at Hamlin Park as part of Aurora's 175th anniversary celebrations on July 3rd. And now we go back 45 years ago to May 11, 1978. County legislators authorize a contract providing the town of Aurora with a 15-passenger van to provide transportation for senior citizens in Aurora, Elma, Marilla, and Wales. The Iroquois School Board, faced with picketers and petitions signed by more than 1,800 district residents, turned down bids from three private bus companies to supply school transportation. John Hitchings, son of Mr. and Mrs. Stanley Hitchings of Center Street, receives a master's degree in forestry forestry from Duke University. Cheryl Hall, a senior at East Aurora High School, wins first prize in Gannon College's high school poetry contest. And Donald D. Hickey, the son of Mr. and Mrs. Rob Hickey of Blakely Road in South Wales, graduates from the University of Buffalo's Medical School. And finally, 60 years ago, in May 11, 1963, for the second year, Robert Snyder is installed as commander of the Aurora Casanova Post 205 Veterans of Foreign Wars. Private Dale Hinterberger, son of Mr. and Mrs. Clayton Hinterberger of Hunters Creek Road, enlists in the United States Marine Corps' reserves six-month program. Marilyn Wood, daughter of Mrs. Alice Wood of Porterville Road, is accepted at the Canton ATI for the fall semester. 
Mr. and Mrs. Ray Braun of Sweet Road announced the birth of a son, Scott Daniel. William Williams, president and general manager of the Aurora Frozen Food Center, is cited at Cornell University for his contributions to the frozen meat industry. Bruce Hayes, son of Mr. and Mrs. Kenneth Hayes of Davis Road in West Falls, completes basic training at the Naval Training Center in Great Lakes, Illinois. The village board approves a new budget with the same tax rate as last year, $34.06 per thousand dollars assessment, and with a police department budget as the largest item at $87,891. The village board denies a petition of the Aurora Village Shopping Center requesting permission to establish an amusement enterprise on a portion of the parking lot. Sure Cure, a comedy directed by June Severance, is presented by the Aurora Players, starring Jane Auerbury, Heather Moden, Nancy Conway, Harry Webb, and John Rodwick. And finally, Mrs. Donald O. Putney announces the engagement of Patricia Louise Putney and George Seymour Roberts, Jr. Next, we have the Rod, Gun, and Game column by Forrest Fisher, and the headline here is, Sometimes You Just Gotta Be Lucky. In the 80s, I telephoned Al Linder and asked why his excellent television show on fishing never included anything on Eastern Lake Erie or Western Lake Ontario. I was surprised, first of all, that he picked up the phone. I used the phone number noted on the inside cover of an In Fisherman magazine. He said we haven't been out that way in the past. I explained how our planner board walleye fishing was going tangential with the brand new anglers and how the smallmouth bath fishing was the best in the world. I told him about walleyes on downriggers and about speed trolling for bass, how to catch them when they absolutely will not bite. He asked, how do you do that? Two weeks later, I received a call from Ron Linder asking if he could impose on my time and take me fishing to make a television show or two. He said, it'll take about a week. Sometimes you just got to be lucky, I answered. Impose? Not at all. I'd love it, Mr. Linder. I can handle that, but I must check with my better half. He replied, well, maybe this is not a good idea then. I don't want to get between family things. Honestly, though, I do the same thing. He was just gauging me out. I shared, the dates you want to visit fall on our wedding anniversary. My wife is a sweet, young, cuddly thing that really gets upset when I forget that day. He understood, as I said, I would call him back. So, I carefully shared the news and the dates with my wife, Fern. When I, when told that the ambassador of freshwater fishing wanted to visit western New York and do a few fishing shows with me and my best fishing buddy, Russ Johnson, Fern said, hand on hips, well, at least you remember the date. I guess it'll be okay this time. Call me every night while you're away so the kids can hear their daddy say good night. I replied, I was going to call to talk to you too. That okay? When I got the ear-to-ear -ear smile with hands on hips and a finger pointing to the garage to go prepare, I knew things would be okay. About a month later, the Linder crew arrived in town setting up shop in Dunkirk at a local motel, the perfect place to find walleye, bass, lake trout, and fine fishing to the Lake Erie Deep. On day one, 
The southwest wind was tipping the wind meter at 25 to 30 miles an hour, and whitecaps were airborne as they rolled over Chadwick Bay marina break walls. Their boat, a 22-foot Lund with twin Mercury 150s on the transom and dual downrigger mounts on the stern, was all shined up and ready to fish. Lindner said it looks like it might be a little bumpy. What do you think, Forrest? I replied, I'm a U.S. Navy veteran, Ron. Big water doesn't scare me, but this is a little boat for that big stuff. The waves are five to seven feet. If you really want to get the boat wet, we could idle out in the point just outside the harbor break wall and check the sonar. There are bass and perch schools set up there when the weather is rough like this. Without hesitation, he said, yes, let's go. I glanced at my veteran fishing buddy, Russ, who was listening. He put two hands on his head and whispered, be very careful. Off we went. We didn't get 200 yards outside the break wall when Ron said, I'm not so sure about this, Forrest. We were mic'd up, and Russ, who was running the camera boat alongside, was pointing thumbs down while motioning toward the camera guys. In only 10 minutes, I watched the cameraman heave over the side, yelling something that sounded like a Buick. This happened more than once, so I told Roan that he and I might be okay out there, but the television crew wasn't looking good. He responded with, you know what, let's send them in. I thought the trip for this day was over when he said, you and I can just go fishing. That's when I knew he was anxious to hook up with some fish on day one. The camera crew went back to the marina and we went fishing. All I could ever dream about was fishing with one of the most famous linders and here I was on a less than perfect fishing day doing just that. Dreams do come true. What can we catch with this weather, Forrest? I explained that we could not run the planer boards or the downriggers, but with this wind, the eddy currents near Shorewood Shoal, who were about three miles west, would create a strong bait fish attracting location on the small mouth bass Keon. It was a location between Van Buren Point and Point Gradient. On similar nasty weather days, Russ Johnson had taken me there many times after launching at the Northern Chautauqua Conservation Club when their public launch was open for use. Let me pause here for a moment and remind you that you're listening to a reading of articles and features from the East Aurora Advertiser on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. How will we fish, Forrest? Are you kidding me? Ron Lindrum is asking me how to fish? Dear Lord, please pinch me. Sometimes you just got to be lucky. I'd read every word the Linders printed since In Fisherman magazine started. Since it would be hard to drift and jig, an effective method I like, I suggested that we power troll with a deep diving noisemaker lures like the Magnum Wiggle Wart in black and silver. We carefully worked our way up to the north side of the shoal where the bottom dropped from 18 feet to 40 feet and we moved the boat about a half mile into the wind above that structure. We turned the boat and started to run with the waves, letting out about 125 feet of line on 8-pound Berkeley XT monofilament, in parentheses braided line had not yet been invented, and placing the rods into rod holders. The rod tips were throbbing, signaling the lures had effective wobble-wiggle diving action down there. We were doing about 5 to 6 miles an hour when the lures hit the bottom of the 18-foot structure. The rod tips rocked to and fro, hard as the lures pounded the bottom for about 2 seconds, then wham! 
then another rod, wham! The two rod tips went straight back, no more throbbing. Two fish are hooked up, I hollered to Ron. The thunderous sound from the waves made it difficult to hear, but he shouted back, that's unbelievable. We repeated the same track one more time and experienced the same results. Okay, let's go in before we tempt Mother Nation once too often. This is unreal, Forrest. As we idled back to port in calm water in the inner harbor, Linder said, I've never done that sort of trolling high speed like that. I explained that it was not my idea. I learned it from Russ Johnson, the guy on the shore driving the camera boat. We spent the next two hours at lunch with Russ Johnson and the camera crew sharing bass and walleye-catching details that Johnson had learned and developed over his lifetime. Johnson was a former Bell Aerospace Electronics genius working at Moog when it was my good fortune to meet him. I had accepted a job at Moog after my military days, and as luck would have it, I was assigned to Johnson's work team. Sometimes you just got to be lucky. We filmed three episodes on Lake Erie for walleye and bass and on Lake Ontario from Wilson-Tuscarora Park for brown trout over the next five days. It was a great week. I had phoned Fern and the kids each day except one. In the excitement of all the fishing and boating action, I could not find a working phone on that most important anniversary day. The next morning they repaired the hotel phones in Wilson and I called home. Fern said, I know that you must have been very, very busy, Forrest. This year we'll be married for 54 years. Sometimes you just got to be lucky. The hot Dunkirk nighttime walleye fishing for right now in this post-full moon period just happens to be right on top and alongside the same shorewood shoal structure that was entertaining Ron Linder and me 30 years ago. Anglers launch boats from Chadwick Bay in Dunkirk next to the fish cleaning station. Savvy anglers run lighted mini-planer boards taped on glow sticks, trailing shadow, shallow running stick baits back about 30 to 40 feet. Limit catches are expected with fish running 18 to 23 inches long on the average. The daily bag limit is six fish per day, a 15-inch minimum. Sometimes you just got to be lucky. Next, we'll turn to the Opinions and Ideas section of the East Aurora Advertiser. And the first article is by Grant Hamilton, who is the publisher of the newspaper. And his column is titled, Saved from the Hell Box. Neighbor to Neighbor News. First, a little explanation and an introduction is in order. The title of this column is derived from a period in printing history when news columns were set in type by casting hot metal made mostly from lead into lines of type. After the issue was printed, most of the lines of type were tossed in a box to be melted down and reused in the next edition. This box became known as the Hell Box. A helper in the shop who was responsible for remelting was known as the Printer's Devil. I've been in the business long enough to have experienced operating a lead-casting linotype machine, but that's another story. I entered the newspaper world, uh, newspaper publishing world, as the Internet, the Internet required a capital I back then, began to have a profound impact on the industry. I would write notes to myself about the state of technology, the newspaper business, and journalism. 
they never were for publication, but I dropped them in a folder and somehow they were saved from the hell box over the years. It's up to the publisher and staff of a newspaper to deal with the cause and effect of change. Consumers of news media have not necessarily been following along with the changes in technology and business practices that impact their reading experience. As long as the product is delivered as they expect, with the quality and content to their liking, what we do behind the scenes goes largely unnoticed, at least until recently. People are talking about the decline of some newspapers, the impact of so-called social media, and how artificial intelligence can write everything from school papers to poetry to news stories. Perhaps it's time to reread Marshall McLuhan's 1960s book and theories on communication. But back down to ground level. I'm sometimes asked how newspapers decide on the size of the sheet. Looking around the newspaper office, it's easy to follow these changes. We can see a variety of sizes of bound volumes when we look at our archives. The fact is, publishers often do not and have not had a great deal of say about the size of the newspaper page. Available printing presses have dictated sheet sizes since colonial days. Newspapers with relatively small press runs typically gave up their own printing presses beginning in the 1960s, taking advantage of new technology that offered improved efficiency and quality. Often, that meant changing the size of the newspaper. Our newspapers are called broadsheet size in the, size in the trade. Broadsheet was much once broader than other alternatives, and some early broadsheet newspapers were pretty hard to handle because of the widths of the two pages. Turning one of our newspapers folded in half with the fold on the left is roughly equal to what's called a tabloid. In this sense, tabloid in the newsprinting industry refers to the size, not the style of the content. Over the years, we've published both broadsheet and tabloid formats. We've been printed in a cooperative shop in the Hamburg Suns press room before current ownership, the Suns' successor printing plant, the Olean Times Herald, and the Bradford Era. Neighbor to Neighbor News currently prints our six newspapers, the East Aurora Advertiser, the Elma Review, the Arcade Herald, the Springville Journal, the Mercury Gazette, and the Warsaw Country, Warsaw Country Courier through the Buffalo News. We occasionally redesign our newspapers in an effort to make them more reader-friendly. Whether it's just a regular part of the job or in response to a printing press change, our rule when approaching a redesign is borrowed from the architect Lewis Sullivan's axiom, form follows function. That circles us back to communications theory. As publishers, we once dictated the format of our newspapers as size was dictated to us by the physical constraints of our printing press. The modern landscape has shifted. The consumer, not the size of the printing press, is in control of format to a large extent, and I believe that this is a profound change. Publishers must be prepared to provide content in a form dictated by consumers' appetites, screens of various sizes on various devices, and, in some cases, offer audio and video. Already, the idea of audio and video is evolving to include short-form video driven by consumers' appetites and social media almost before we fully integrate it as publishers what it means to embrace digital media. The Hellbox continues to evolve, 
as part of producing news, constantly recycling what we put into it as the environment demands more and more innovation. Next, we have the editorial from the May 11th issue of the East Aurora Advertiser. And the headline on the editorial is, So Many Questions, Too Few Answers. The news last week about the sale of the Roycroft Inn and two additional portions of the campus from the Margaret L. Went Foundation to Douglas Jamal of Douglas Properties left more questions than answers. Who approached who about the sale? What is the purchase price? What are the short-term and long-term plans? Are there discussions to purchase the remaining buildings on the campus? Is this national landmark still East Aurora if its headquarters headquarters are in Washington, D.C.? The Roycroft Inn is now on the list of nearly 200 properties on the East Coast that Douglas Development owns. The Inn is also among nearly 10 Western New York purchases that the company has made in recent years, such as the Boulevard Mall in Amherst and the Statler Hotel and Seneca One Tower, both located in Buffalo. And while many of the buildings that Jamal has taken over were at the point of neglect, vacancy, and decay, this is not necessarily the case for the Inn, the Chapel, and the Park. What we do know is that Jamal is known for buying, renovating, and then maintaining historic property. While we get used to his anticipated presence and the influence in East Aurora over the next few months, let's hope he gets to know us as well. The Roycroft Inn is a destination and one of the heartbeats of this town. It was brought back to life and made into an institution with the imagination, foresight, blood, sweat, and tears of people who lived here, both when Albert Hubbard founded it and when it was revitalized decades later. East Aurora is not the same without the inn, and the inn is not the same without East Aurora. Now, complementing this editorial, there is a column, The Past in Editorials, and this was written in 1995 when the Roycroft Inn was about to reopen after being restored. And the headline here is, Roycroft Inn is a focal point for a vital campus. When the Roycroft Inn reopens this weekend, it will be in the best physical condition it has enjoyed since Elbert walked the halls. In fact, it might be a little better. Some of Hubbard's era once sarcastically noted that the Roycroft Inn was built by Hubbard to house his admirers. That may be more true today than it was at the turn of the century when the sometimes controversial Hubbard had his share of detractors. Certainly, the historical importance of the inn as part of the Arts and Crafts Center will draw visitors. But for many area residents, the inn has a closer connection to personal history. The Roycroft Inn was the site of many important personal milestones, high school proms, engagements, weddings, birthdays, and anniversaries in the post-Hubbard era. For this writer, it was his first East Aurora home nearly 40 years ago when relocating to the community and later the site of summer employment. For many, the personal memories of the inn are as important as the Roycroft history and the reopening of the inn keeps those personal memories alive. Over the last three decades, the historical importance of Albert Hubbard's Roycroft has gained notice by more and more people and two innkeepers, Vince Holland and Kelly Turgeon, who took special notice of Roycroft history in their efforts to revitalize the inn. 
Unfortunately, the size, age, and construction of the inn proved to be too much for the operator to overcome. Now, for the first time in decades, the inn's physical condition won't be a burden for the operators. To the contrary, it is a major asset. We've recognized that some of the people who were instrumental in the early efforts to save the inn from devastating bankruptcy auction. They range from political leaders to children who collected pennies to many citizen volunteers. But, of course, their efforts were multiplied and magnified by the Margaret L. Went Foundation. The foundation came through with the original $500,000 grant, which, when added to a $200,000 state grant obtained by the village of East Aurora, saved the inn and its Roycroft collection from bankruptcy. But the, the Went Foundation's support didn't end there. For year after year, it seemed that it seemed hopes that a private developer would provide the necessary funds to renovate and reopen the inn would be raised, then dashed. Ultimately, the Went Foundation undertook the responsibility for the entire project and the inn, some $8 million later, has been restored beyond dreams. East Aurorans can be proud of their efforts to secure this national landmark and the Margaret L. Went Foundation for their leadership in sticking with the project and make, taking it that extra mile. While the inn, as it, with the inn as its focal point, the entire Roycroft campus can now become the focus for an active revitalization. Many communities boast historic sites and historic reenactments, but East Aurora has the opportunity to continue to expand its role as a creative center for arts and industry. Again, I'll pause to remind you that you're listening to a reading of articles and features from the East Aurora Advertiser on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Our next item from the Opinions and Ideas page of the East Aurora Advertiser is headlined Reflections on the School Year and Looking Ahead, and the article is by Brian D. Russ, who is the East Aurora School Superintendent. It's been an exciting and productive year as I reflect on the past nine months. I do so with a sense of gratitude and appreciation. We're making strong progress in the classroom as we continue to navigate academic challenges as a result of COVID-19. I am so grateful for the creativity, compassion, and perseverance of our students and staff. Their strength and courage have allowed them to take on these challenges with positive energy to overcome the gaps that we've been experiencing. We're also focused on offering new opportunities to enhance our students' learning experience. Blue Devil Design started in the fall of 2022 and is off to a great start. Students have the opportunity to experience all aspects of the manufacturing process, including business administration, sales, marketing, and technology design. This is an authentic career-building experience that will offer ownership and leadership experience in a collaborative work environment. Additionally, a group of our students had the opportunity to participate in NASA's rocketry competition. The process began with a 60-page application and consultation with NASA engineers, resulting in the participation in a competitive rocket launch in Huntsville, Alabama. We're very proud of the hard work and dedication it took our students to get there and the excellent results of the final rocket launch. We're excited to offer a new elective, Sustainable Agriculture, in the fall of 2023. 
This course is being offered in response to student interest and will focus on regenerative farming practices. Extracurricular and athletic participation is at an all-time high. From Parkdale to the high school, our students enjoy participating in clubs, musical, singing and instrumental performances, and numerous athletic opportunities. Performances on stage and field have been quite impressive and are the result of our students' hard work and dedication. We also continue to make the social and emotional well-being of our students, staff, and community a central focus. It is our mission to create the most welcoming environment possible and a culture of compassion and support. With this in mind, we will continue our work in the areas of social-emotional learning, restorative practices and diversity, equity, and inclusion. The social, emotional, and mental wellness of our students remained at the forefront of our planning as we move through the school year. I'm very excited to announce that we will have the support of a social, emotional, learning expert to help us continue to develop and expand our program. We will continue with training this summer, and the program will be delivered in the classroom through related activities. Restorative practice is a powerful approach to discipline that focuses on empowering students and repairing harm through inclusive, inclusive processes that engage all stakeholders. We made significant progress this school year and will continue to train additional staff members this summer. The New York State Board of Regents launched an initiative to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion in schools across the state. We continue to focus on providing an experience for our students that provides equal access and opportunities by creating a caring environment that is built upon trust and respect. All students must feel that they're welcome, that they belong, and that they're supported in every school. We're working with a consultant from Erie One BOCES. Additionally, we'll continue with professional development for staff for the coming school year. I continue to work with my student advisory group, which advises me on how to improve the school's climate and culture. I appreciate their insight and find their input to be invaluable as I work with our teachers and administrators to create an environment that supports all members of our school community. I'm very proud of how we've responded to the challenges of the past three years and what we've accomplished along the way. These successes are the result of our collective efforts. I'm deeply grateful to have the opportunity to lead the district and for the support we receive from our parents and community. This would not be possible without your continued commitment and support. Next, we have a couple of letters to the editor. And the first is by Fran Olands, and it's headlined, A Local Angel. Dear Editor, Every neighborhood needs one. We who live on South Ostrander and Cookham have one. We have Debbie Kempf, our neighborhood angel. Our angel may not have the wings, but she has legs that carry her to help anyone in need. For many years, she regularly visits a wheelchair-bound neighbor. Often, she's a companion to a special needs child, so mom can have time to herself. When the school bus comes, she's there because mom is at work. Grandma knows Debbie will be there on days she can't be at her daughter's home. If you're lucky, you are the recipient of her fantastic cookies. If you need something from the supermarket, she will add your list to hers. She's a great organizer. It was Debbie's idea that the women on South Ostrander and Cookman get together one night each month for happy hour at someone's home. We can't meet during business hours because some of the neighbors are working. 
Too often in our modern lives, we don't get to know people who are living close to us. Years ago, we'd be at the creek washing our family's clothing and we would know all of our neighbors. Debbie is Command Central by keeping us informed by who just had a baby, who's ill, and who has passed on. For many years, Debbie worked as a school nurse, but she retired early to spend time with her grandchildren. Somehow, she finds the time to teach her first aid courses, swim lessons, and jet-setting to London to visit her son, Adam, who was recently honored as an outstanding East Aurora alumnus. She's equally proud of her daughter, Gretchen, who has chosen to be a nurse. Where would the doctors be if we did not have nurses today? Debbie will never be awarded a Nobel Prize, but she will always win the admiration of all who know her. And finally, an article, a letter from Jeremy Hubbard of East Aurora, headlined A Dangerous Distraction. While our nation is currently embroiled in an all-consuming culture war, we're dangerously distracted from true threats to our way of life. These battles are frequently covered in the news cycle. Legislatures across the country are enacting laws to persecute those they have defined as enemies of the state. These alleged enemies are fellow Americans who deviate in some way from social norms of the conservative movement. Meanwhile, our true adversaries are strategizing to diminish our and influence our in role and influence on the world stage. What is worse is that many in the country would be content to hand it to them. Many in the populace were misled to believe the America First and ultra-nationalist anthems. It is easy to see how. How could America First possibly be bad for America? The principle of America First is not the problem. In fact, this country has always been America First. The problem is the policies enacted behind it. Irritating long-standing allies, attacking the importance of NATO, showing favoritism to autocrats, and using military aid for partisan politics are not constructive policies. America has interests around the globe that need to be protected. Propping up allies, providing resources to poorer nations, leading on global issues, promoting democracy are things the nation does to retain our global relevance and influence. These measures go a long way. In helping to preserve our way of life at home, they also help to hedge against far costlier escalations that may erupt and drain more of our resources. As it now stands, our adversaries are collaborating to change the world order. Russia and China want to reshape the world while removing America from the stage. They are too eager to claim the power void in the world that we seem so eager to create. If our historical foreign policy was wrong and we need to pivot to isolationism, why are others taking such strides to take over the reign? They could not be more pleased that our attention is diverted with our own nation within fighting. I propose we call a truce on the internal cultural war and reevaluate our priorities. We can set it aside for a while, like we have gun violence and Catholic priests. If we collectively come to realize the actual threats to our nation and way of life, we can unify on a common cause. A unified America is the biggest fear to anyone looking to cause harm. If Chinese spy balloons and Russian invading sovereign nations are not enough to refocus our attention, we should be concerned. And finally, to wrap up the hour, we have this item. Local residents sings national anthem at Fenway Park in Boston. 
South Wales residents Lou Margo traveled to Boston, Massachusetts last week to sing the national anthem before a Red Sox game at Fenway Park with the Nassoons, an a cappella glee club made up of about two dozen Princeton University alumni from the classes of 1964 through 1972. Fenway was not the Nassoons' first gig, not by a long shot. When I was an undergraduate at Princeton, Markle said, a retired engineer who builds and restores wooden canoes and sings with the local band, the Buffalo Barn Cats, I was a member of an a cappella singing group that had been in existence since the 1940s and is still in existence now. It keeps perpetuating as singers graduate and as undergraduates take their place. Those of us from about 64 to 72 get together every few years to sing the songs from our college days at shows around the country. Six or seven years ago, we sang at Wrigley Field. One of the guys who lives in Boston had a friend who had a friend who worked with the Red Sox, and he helped us get the shot at Fenway Park. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the Thursday, May 11th, 2023 issue of the East Aurora Advertiser. Your reader has been Ed Howard. Thank you for listening.